Well, I wonder if I was to ask you who was the world's most powerful person, I wonder who you would think of. Would it be Angela Merkel or Sepp Blatter or someone like that? I don't know. Well, you might feel inclined to go along with Forbes magazine. Forbes magazine, that American business and current affairs publication. You see, every year, for a number of years, they've published their view on the world's most powerful 72 people. Don't ask me why 72, it's a long story. And this year, 2014, that list of the world's most powerful people is headed by, guess who, Vladimir Putin, who runs Barack Obama into second place. And Forbes magazine point to things like Putin's increasing control over what happens inside Russia, his chess playing over military intervention and the struggle over Syria, and his nuclear-tipped army. Sure signs that Vladimir Putin has his steely grip on the domestic and international stage, force that he can deploy at his own will. And Forbes seem to find that a heck of a lot more reassuring than I do, I can tell you. Now, I'm not going to run through the whole list of 72. You might be relieved to hear. But in case you're curious, 72nd on that list is Janet Yellen. Anyone heard of Janet Yellen? Well, she's the chair of the U.S. Federal Reserve, their federal and central bank. And that bank has a $4 trillion balance sheet. And Janet has a desire to translate that economic strength into jobs for ordinary American people. And she's at the foot of the list. So that must contain a heck of a lot of power the further you go up. And if you reflect on that list, as I have done, what you see is power over money and where it goes. Power over war and peace. Power over our economic circumstances. Power over geographical neighbours. You know, every day, our own perspectives on power is shaped like things by things like that. And also, in our own lives, who can give us money or take it away? Who can declare war in our name? Who can sack us or give us a job? Who can invade our land or buy things from us? Those are our perceptions of power. Well, Jesus had power. But he had no big bank balance. He exposed conflict as much as he brought peace. He gave no one a paid job and made no one unemployed. And far from exerting power over geographical neighbours, his radical vision of loving our neighbours instead often seemed to fall on deaf ears. So what type of power does Jesus have and how could his type of power matter in a world where control, control over three or four billion or trillion dollars of assets only brings you in at 72nd place? So what type of power does he have? Well, the nature of Jesus' power is what Luke explores 
in this part of the gospel which Chris has just read for us. And last week at this service, John White considered Jesus' authority over the natural universe in calming the storm. Jesus' authority over nature. And elsewhere in chapter 8, we hear about Jesus' power over death and disease. But today, we're going to reflect on Jesus' power over demons. His power over evil and destructive forces. And Luke illustrates that through a story of what happened to Jesus when he moved into the non-Jewish lands in Gerasenes over the other side of Lake Galilee and encountered a man possessed by demons. Well, if you want to cast your eyes over the passage as I'm speaking, it is, of course, on page 1038, so you might want to do that, or you might want to follow the talk on the attractively coloured lime um, summary notes. And we're going to look at, reflect on that story from the perspectives of the three main players in the story. Firstly, the demons who speak through the demon-possessed man initially. Second, the local people and how they respond to the man's healing. And finally, to the man himself and how he takes steps of walking forward with Jesus. And of course, through each of those, we'll learn about Jesus because that's Luke's primary aim here, to tell us more about the Lord Jesus Christ. So we begin by looking at the demons, the forces of destruction in the story. Well, this man was in fact possessed by many demons, a whole legion of demons, a a whole army of them, if you like. And they'd, in other words, the demons inside him, made him lead a life in dark places, unclothed, unkempt. And through that man, they made the most unlikely welcoming committee as Jesus stepped off that boat on the other side of the lake from Galilee. And I want to just note two things about the demons in the story. The first is that they immediately recognize Jesus' power over them. The man is their mouthpiece. And as he says in verse 28, don't torture me. In verse 29, Jesus had commanded the evil spirits to come out. And then in verse 31, they beg Jesus repeatedly not to send them into the abyss, the place of judgment and condemnation. And indeed, they beg in verse 32 that instead Jesus drives them into a herd of pigs that they might possess them instead of the man. So the language and the storyline is all about Jesus being in charge in the face of an army of demons, in the face of evil. So first is that Jesus is in charge. The second point about the demons is indeed the effect that they have on the pigs. Because these pigs, into whom the demons then go and possess their spirits, rush down the steep bank in the story, into the lake, and they drown. That's pretty dramatic. Because when unleashed on the pigs, the demons have the immediate power to make the animal self-destruct. They've already reduced the man to something less than human and a slow, agonizing self-destruction. 
but they find less resistance in the pigs. And the language and storyline that Luke portrays is all about the demon's power, unfettered, to bring self-destruction. To bring self-destruction. Now, a first reaction to a story like this, you and I listening to it on a Sunday morning, might be that we don't need to be terribly concerned. I mean, I don't know about you, but the closest it seems to me that I've come to demons <clears throat> was probably a visit to Millwall Football Club in uh, the late 1970s, which ran a close approximation to some of what I've read here. So, apologies to any Millwall fans amongst us. But it feels to me like my years since have been relatively demon-free. In fact, demons often occupy the same part of my imagination as griffins, unicorns and elves. Maybe yours too. A bit of a fairy story. But we tend to think there in the physical dimension and play with images, shapes and words that make the association with evil that affects us quite difficult to relate to. But then when I think about the spiritual dimension of demons, perhaps I've seen demons more closely at work. I've seen friends, as perhaps you have, who have self-destructed through addiction. I recall a work colleague, a close work colleague, who at the age of 32 was so overtaken by drink dependency that his wife and family left him for their own safety two weeks before he himself died in his own house fire. And I've seen a school friend who was so bubbly and funny, who became involved shortly after school with bad influences and spent many years in a Thai prison for drug smuggling. And I have seen families self-destruct through times of unchecked desire, You may have your own painful recollections. I mean, all of us in our news at the moment are seeing factions, nations and people self-destruct through forces that make their choices, it appears, less than human. Where it's not inconceivable to speak of a people possessed. You see, at the extremes, there are probably a couple of mistakes that we could make. On the one hand, a mistake we could make is to see demons in everything. To see demons in the next piece of chocolate cake or the next pint of beer lined up on the bar. If we see demons in those things, we tend to abdicate all responsibility in our lives. And our lives become a vacuum where everything is somebody else's fault. For putting it in our way. But the other mistake we could make is not to see demons in everything, but demons in nothing. And place them permanently alongside elves, unicorns and griffins. And if we do so, we underestimate the power of sin in our lives that can force upon us self-destruction if it goes unchecked. And ultimately, in doing so, we sanitize our concept of Jesus and of good and limit 
what he does for us. Because what we're reminded here is that Jesus has power over the forces of evil. That he can heal when that power is brought to bear. And so that's why we pray every week for situations where evil intent exists and where the power of Jesus might exert itself and bring healing. And as we reflect on the demons that you and I might battle with inside ourselves, anywhere on the spectrum from temptation to self-destruction, we can, I believe, recall another time. A time when Jesus met not with a legion of demons in one man, but with the power of sin and brokenness in all humanity. When the remedy was not the death of a herd of pigs, but the sacrifice of God's own son himself on the cross. When the restoration was not one man brought back to himself, but a whole people restored to a life with God. As we glimpse Jesus' power over evil in one situation in our story, we see in fact that the whole of Christian faith is a trust in his power to restore. To restore us to a life free from sin and death. Now, for you and I, that might have or will, I pray, provoke us into exploring that power for the first time with a Christian friend through the pages of a Bible. Or it might be a baptism that opens the door to that life. It might be finding Jesus' strength to overcome problems that we're struggling with in our own lives and that are simply dragging us down. Or it might be as we look with hope to the end of our lives, just being reassured that we're in Jesus' care. A power that overcame demons in one man is a signpost to a power that brings freedom to all humanity. So let's turn now to our second group in the story and see how they respond to events. And that's the local people who are grappling with fear. I mean, those people that were in charge of the pigs there at the top of the hill must have felt a bit like a car dealer who just witnessed a pile-up on their forecourt. Distressed, probably angry, not quite believing their eyes. So they went all around, understandably, town and country, to tell the news of what had happened. And when that news spread, the reaction of the local people was not quite what we might immediately expect, because it's mentioned that they were afraid, verse 35, overcome with fear, verse 37, and that they asked Jesus to leave them. Again, in verse 37. Now, you would have thought they'd have found something to celebrate in a man's healing. He must have been a well-known case. So why were they afraid to that extent? Perhaps they were afraid of what Jesus would do next. That he'd start sending sheep and cattle to death. That would be bad for business. Or perhaps that fear was placed in them by demons that were within them. 
Or it might be that what they encountered, the spiritual battle between Jesus and the demons, was just too much for them. And they felt out of control. And of course, you know, at one level, their reaction seems quite quaint to us. A group of local buffers who couldn't really hack it when the Prince of Peace came to their doorstep. It might remind us of the Decca record executives who turned down the deal with the Beatles in 1963, or the Western Union Telegraph Company who replied to Alexander Graham Bell and reported that they didn't see, his, see an application for his invention, the telephone. But on closer inspection, their asking Jesus to leave is something to which you and I might Relate. Because we do well to acknowledge that when we ask Jesus to restore us, as we've just been considering, to restore us in our lives, that Jesus brings light. And that light shines into dark places in our lives. And that can be very uncomfortable. Because in those sharp rays of light, we're forced to come to terms with our own darkness, our own demons, and to offer ourselves for change. And change almost always hurts, doesn't it? Surrendering habits or addictions which don't glorify God. Passing control to God of decisions we'd rather take for ourselves. Making ourselves vulnerable. I mean, that's not stuff we do. I wonder if there are times for you, like I, when Jesus seems a little bit too much as well. When the burden of change that might be involved is one we'd rather pass to somebody else. Well, at those times, I'd encourage you to reject the example of the local people who just seem set to continue with their lives for fear of the light and healing that Jesus brings. And instead, I would encourage you to follow the example of the healed man himself, who, as the demons left him, tried to get closer to the one who healed him. Now, getting close to someone or asking someone to stay in our lives as partners, as best friends, in marriage, in family, that always changes us seems to me because we need to adapt to somebody else we need to take their wishes continually into account we need to show patience with each other in good and bad times when that someone is Jesus living alongside and inside us the change is even more dramatic because we're drawn to holier ways of living we're drawn to become part of new communities We're drawn to be shown new paths that we might follow. And so it is with the man who had been demon-possessed. And it's to him now that we will finally turn. Now, in fact, the man who was healed by Jesus wants to do a heck of a lot more than ask Jesus to stay. He wants to go with him wherever he's off to next. But in verse 39, Jesus sends him away. Why would he do that? Well, because he says, return home 
and tell how much God has done for you. So the man remains in his town and tells all over the town what Jesus has done for him. I guess he becomes a kind of mission partner, not one sent out into the hills, but one asked to remain. He had a story to tell. He'd gone from one chained, living in the most unclean of places, vagrant, to one personally saved by Jesus, sitting at his feet, dressed and in his right mind. A complete healing, a new start, a man restored and a life claimed for God's kingdom. He had a story to tell. He had a story to tell of Jesus' power over evil and his compassion. He had a story to tell that was uncomfortable too. He was a reminder of the power that had been asked to leave. And Jesus' view that was that story was best told where it had taken place. By the living evidence in him of God's grace. I suppose that challenges us as a church that we too may be best used for the kingdom simply by being where we already are, among our families, long-established friends, in our current places of work or education, our current church. There's more than one way of following Jesus that doesn't necessarily involve moving. And I think, therefore, God may be challenging us as a church, you and I, to tell our stories where we are now. And when this church does next year its life to the full mission, we're going to be challenged to tell our stories in this place. And we'll need God's help for that, for lots of reasons. But sometimes because we're not so confident of the story that we have to tell. Our transformation may not have seemed as dramatic as that of the demon-possessed man. In fact, it might not feel that much of a transformation at all. But I know plenty among us here who, when we speak of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, can tell of a hope for the future that we simply can't find anywhere else. Can tell of a peace that we find in moments spent in God's company that elude us at all other times. That can tell of how it feels to be part of a caring community in a way that a dog-eat-dog world can't match. And can tell of a prayer that they have offered that has glided through the eternal mystery of the Spirit and has been responded to by the one we believe to be our maker. So ours too is a story to share in the power of the Spirit. So that others may encounter Jesus too in their own way. Well, just to bring things together now, in conclusion. We've heard, I think, that Jesus is powerful beyond the forces of destruction and evil. We've heard that asking Jesus to stay and not to leave and work his power in us may not be our first inclination, but may be our best instinct. And we've heard that we too, like the man, have a story to tell of Jesus' power working in marvellous ways. Well, as I said at the beginning, Forbes magazine 
lists the world's 72 most powerful people and it's a list that dazzles. But it is as a glowworm. It is as a glowworm compared to Colossians 1, 17, who describe Jesus as, Paul in that letter, he who is before all things, he who is before all things, and in whom all things hold together. You see, Jesus' power is not the power of the year 2014. but the power that is before all things. It is not the power of 72 noteworthy people, but of him who reigns. It's not the power over money, armies, public opinion or status, but the power of and over all things, including the things of evil. And it is not the power of human arm or muscle, but the power that holds all things together. Not the power of man, then, but the limitless power of God. And it is a power that is not held back from you and I, but has been poured out for us. In Jesus' life, death and resurrection, that we might share in its benefits by God's good grace. Amen.